Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. He was just happy go lucky Joe. Everybody loved him. He was so kind. He'd give you, you know, his last bit of money in his pocket and things. He just really laughed. What would you do if someone you loved never came home? In the UK, around 170,000 people are reported missing each year. The vast majority of these are found again within a week, but there are currently around 5,300 individuals who still haven't returned and are now classed as long-term missing. Joseph Shan is one of these individuals. My name's Tim Woodson, and in this episode of Beckett Talks, we're going to examine the circumstances around Joe's disappearance and introduce a new team of students, academics, and former police officers within Leeds Beckett University who are working to discover exactly what happened on the night of Joe's disappearance and in the months and years since. Yeah, we were a friendly guy. Everybody liked me. I had quite a few friends, a lot from the homeless community. This is Joe's sisters, Kelly and Tammy Shan, who Joe was living with for the 14 weeks before he went missing. He loved his nieces, his nephews. He helped us in the year before he went missing. He was looking after my kids. He was coming to help me. He was living with Tammy, with her kids. He was in good spirits. Looking forward to Tammy's baby that she was pregnant with. He was always spotlessly clean. Always cared how he looked, how he smelled. Moisturiser. <laughs> yeah, to dream his face every day. Yeah. Where's the nibby attempt? His spirit was just high. He, he was just a really... Especially before he went missing, he was the best he'd been in his whole life. Yeah. Settled. Joe left the house in East Leeds on the morning of the 10th of December 2010. It's not known where he went that day, but the sisters say he returned around 5pm in a good mood. He was looking forward to Christmas and the day he left, he left on the morning, you know, went to get, to go to the bank to get some money. He came back, give me some money for all the kids, you know, nephews and nieces and things. For Christmas. Yeah, for Christmas. And he went out on the morning, then he came back up. It's just because it's the memories of. And give me daughter a sandwich and her friend had got sandwiches and he went back out and it was tea time, he came back. High spirit, really, you know, happy. He said, uh, you know, he just got changed. And he said, how do I look, sis? He said, do I look cool? Well, he said, cush. I said, yeah, you look amazing. Uh, and off he went. And I just said, you know. So you went and got home. Yeah. We know that Joseph left his sister's house at about 5.30 on the 10th of December. We know that he was going out with drinks with friends. We don't know who those friends were. Kirsty Bennett is a lecturer at Leeds Beckett University with a research focus on how psychological, forensic and criminology principles are used to approach complex and serious unsolved crimes. We then know that he was seen at about midnight by the two men who were his friends who were later arrested for his murder and then later released. So we have that window of time between 5.30 and 12 where we don't know where Joseph was. He was supposed to be watching my kids that next morning and I rung Tammy to say it's our Joe then she yeah. said no it's not come home. Because of Joe's former lifestyle and relationship with family it wasn't an immediate concern that Joseph hadn't returned home 
it did have issues with drugs. Yeah. And it would disappear from time to time. But on a daily basis, we'd speak to someone that would say, oh, Always. we've seen your jail today yeah. walking Very down popular. so-and-so road. And That's it. But the, that, the drug side of him, he kept that away from us. That was his life with his family. That was about us all, you know. And when it did go missing, we thought maybe he might have relapsed. But we'd hear something so, from someone. So, we thought we'd heard some, something, and that's why we delayed in reporting him missing. And what we have is a delay, really, between the 10th of December when Joe was last seen and when he was officially reported missing, which is June, July time, 2011. On the day that Joe went missing, we know that he ended up at the Green Door Garage in Hyde Park, near the popular events venue, the Brudenell Social Club. Two of Joe's friends then reported seeing Joe leaving the garage at around 12.30am. We were told that he went to his friend's garage and he got there around about half past six, I think they said, and he left there at midnight that night and vanished into thin air. The two men were later arrested on suspicion of Joe's murder. They reported seeing him leave on a bike borrowed from another friend, but Kelly and Tammy don't think this adds up. And he was riding a bike in snow that was very deep in 2010. And, I mean, in them states, you're not going to ride a bike that far and disappear. You know, it was freezing temperatures. There are people who would have seen him on that night. They would be able to, to tell us whether he'd been drinking, whether he had relapsed what his state of mind was, what his plans were, they would know all of that information. And like I said, even if people only had, say, from half five till ten, that's a window of time that we have no information. But also, we have that gap between the 10th of December and when the police started investigating around June, July time. So people will have heard information over that time of what people think have happened or what people know have happened. And they're the things that we really want to know. As well as Joe's history of going missing, there were other positive indications that he might have been well that meant the family waited to report his disappearance. We also had people saying they'd seen him or that they'd arranged to go for a drink with him. And their stories confused everything because they said, oh, yeah, it was last week when it won, it was a couple of months yeah. ago. And, yeah. You know, so at first we thought, yeah, there's, there's still sightings of him. And, but it was just people getting it wrong. And his money's still in the bank. He never went to the bank to get his next money that went in. He took no ID with him when he disappeared. He only had probably 10, 20 quid in his pocket, if that. It was initially the case that the police were like, you know, he'll come back when he wants to because he was he was a known heroin addict. But Joe had actually been clean for over a year prior to his disappearance. He'd been living with his sister, Tammy. He was doing really well, really helping her raise the children, was really closely bonded with them. And they didn't they didn't see it as a as a serious issue. But there is a sense that people may know more than they're letting on. A lady who used to live near Joe actually came forward to the police about a month before the family reported him missing. She told them that she feared for Joseph's life. The police 
tried to follow up with her and she actually redacted her statement and said she was at a grandfather's party she couldn't have been the one to have made that report and she knew nothing about it but she actually came forward to give that information so there are people who have heard what's happened or have an idea of what's happened to Joseph's on that day or around that day that weren't willing or weren't able to come forward at that time. So what do we know? We know that Joseph Shan was a popular, friendly man who was very close with his family. We know he had a history of drug abuse, but he had been clean for a long time before his disappearance, and that on the last day he was seen, he was in a good frame of mind and had no obvious signs he was in trouble. The last known sighting was on the 10th of December 2010, at a garage in Hyde Park, by two men who were initially arrested on suspicion of his murder. Their statements suggest he was seen leaving on a borrowed bike. We also know that around five months after Joe's disappearance, a woman came forward to say that she feared for Joe's life, but later retracted the statement. But after this, the trail goes cold. The police have tried to follow up, but found that there was a climate of fear among those who might have known something about Joe's whereabouts. And in the nine years since, the family have now lost touch with the police. But a new team at Leeds Beckett University have picked up the case and are hoping to uncover new evidence that might lead to some answers about Joe's disappearance. Leeds School of Social Sciences engages with diverse voices through learning and research, uncovering solutions that change people's lives for the better. Our strong commitment to research-led teaching develops our students as critical and creative individuals. We address key issues of public concern and aim to make a difference in the lives of people and communities, creating opportunities for students to actively contribute to society. So, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, discover more about our courses at leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash LSSS. So Leeds Beckett Court Case Unit was set up in August 2020. We were approached by Locate International to work with families and partner agencies like the police, the National Crime Agency, to support families and the police with long-term missing person cases. Before joining Leeds Beckett University, Kirsty Bennett was a researcher within West Yorkshire Police's Homicide and Major Inquiry Team and also spent time with Cold Case Units. In her academic research, she explores the way these teams prioritise and manage their cases. Some of those might be suspicious, where we don't have a body, but we think that person has come to harm. Or it's cases where we have a body and it's now a cold case murder. The unit is made up of academics and former police officers, as well as students from a number of courses, including criminology, criminology with psychology and computer forensics. So we have groups of students that work on our six different cases. And each team has a senior investigating officer and a deputy. All the teams are made up of students who actually work voluntarily outside of their course commitments. We have amazing students in the unit who give up so many hours of their week to work on these cases. They applied to join the unit, they volunteer their time and they always go above and beyond to do the work. And they're really dedicated to trying to find answers for the family and putting that puzzle together. And whilst I have oversight of all the cases, it's really the SIO and the deputy who work on the case and direct their team. So my role as the senior investigating officer. Elle Welton is a second year criminology student and the senior investigating officer on the team that is handling Joe's case. 
makes me the team lead responsible for liaising with Kirsty and some of the other industry professionals. We have around 10 students per case who work directly on each missing person under the guidance of the SIO. I basically liaise with those and the families and compile the research information from the team. So for example, as part of the research process, we create actions and they're essentially your puzzle pieces of the investigation. We compile all this information and rationalise it. So we give reasons for every everything we're researching. If, if we need to present this to the police, when we're liaising with the families, we've got reasons for everything that we do. So yeah, it's my responsibility to make sure that that's all compiled together. A big part of the appeal for students is that as well as working on live cases, they also get to work alongside experts from within the industry itself. We've got Anna Williams, who is a professor of forensic science at UConn University. And she is specifically a forensic anthropologist who helps with understanding things like disposal of remains, clandestine graves, how we might get rid of a body, so things like dismemberment, all those things that help us put together that picture. And then we also have Mark Welton, who was a former DCI for the Metropolitan Police. He led counterterrorism operations and worked on Operation Trident as well. And he works really closely with our SIOs to help them build with their actions for the cases, to help them clarify information, really narrow the hypotheses that we have for our team, and really ensures that SIOs are supported with the policies and documentation that they have to complete, ready to pass the information to a police force. Yeah, it's a good springboard. It's a perfect springboard to be able to really, um, you know, explore the research process so on one hand you have the police investigation side of things but also the liaising with families and really seeing two sides to the coin really helps you in both areas I believe if you have that compassion and that connection with the family you want to try harder you'll research better it's a very collective effort. So once a case has been taken on by the cold case unit what does an investigation involve? So we start by building upon the victimology. So families of a missing person, they would essentially fill out a questionnaire, whether that be in person through speaking to trained professionals who have experience in the field. And so the the families can speak to people like Kirsty. Sometimes these situations are very sensitive. So having that that person there to speak to and go through those questionnaires is a really unique opportunity for the families or even just online. So these questionnaires, they basically compile all the information that the, that the families can possibly re recollect. And then we build upon there, really. It gives us an insight into, into the missing person from the perspective of the family. So we really want to know who they are, their habits, their hobbies, their lifestyle, who their family are, their friends, how they like to access public transport for everything possible about that person that builds a picture so for example if you know that your victim will never leave the house without their car but you found their car in a particular area or they've left it at home that indicates a deviation from their normal routine that starts you thinking about it and that's how we start to really question where we should go next what we should look into and how and we just basically build upon this information and just retrace the steps of the investigation 
So we then move on to using open source information. Um, we make inquiries with places or people known to the victims, should that be necessary. Over the years, you've also started to build an idea about people who might have been involved or people who might know something. So you can start to dig into that person as well, find out what they've been up to, what their involvement with the case might be. And you start to build locations as well. So where could they have travelled? Who might have taken them? What access or facilities did they have to access a certain area and as you start to uncover that information you start to find discrepancies in people's previous accounts or you start to find similarities of what people have said that allows you to start linking everything back together to build a real complete picture of that person maybe their mindset at the time what they're up to and who could have potentially been involved in that. When thinking about cases that stretch back over years, it's difficult to imagine what might have changed to give investigators more evidence. If there was not enough evidence at the time, how can you continue to build a case as the world seems to move on around it? In a lot of our cases so far, our families have been the biggest driver in in pushing their loved one's case. And what we found significantly is people come forward to the family to tell them what they know and they'll share information. It might be somebody who heard a little rumour over the years or somebody who was in a relationship with a possible suspect and they've now got divorced and they're going to tell you what they know about the time and and what they think might have happened. And it may just be rumours, it may just be gossip that people have picked up. And you have to work really hard at identifying what is rumours and gossip versus what the truth is. Because people might have every good intention to help you out, but it's hearsay, it's been twisted over the years. So there's lots of different things that might come up that might have an influence. And we can start to put that together to see where it fits or whether it's not likely. So we never dismiss anything, but we sometimes you have to take things with a pinch of salt. But at the same time, we really encourage people with what they think might be minor information to come forward, because what might be minor to them actually is really helpful for us in sort of putting something together. So if we know that our victim left in a red truck and your ex-partner was also in a red truck at that time, which he then sold in really quickly... That's really helpful for us to know because we've got something more than what we had before. It's a slow process. Sometimes the leads can be lacking. Sometimes, you know, it's too much time's passed. However, we believe that the gift of time can, you know, spur people to give information or bring a fresh perspective in terms of like our team. You know, we're we're new to this process. So even sometimes the most out there idea could be the idea that's spurs a whole process even just investigating something that wasn't investigated before and seemingly minor pieces of information can lead to big developments in a case even after a long period there was a case of a young man who'd been missing for over 20 years and somebody actually came forward and they'd seen an advert in a newspaper that sort of said what what's changed in our community over the years This advert started discussion among the community about the case and how it remained unsolved. And as part of that discussion, somebody came forward and said on the night that this victim had died, they had seen a man being chased in the woods at the back of the house, which was close to where the victim was then found murdered a couple of days later. When the police started to look into it, they were able to identify that the man being chased was in fact the victim and that he was being chased by his ex-girlfriend's brother. 
So even though the ex-brother perhaps wasn't responsible for the murder, he definitely knew something that had gone on that was never known. We never knew that this scenario had happened. But because some fellow in his 70s had seen this advert and reminded, he was then able to come forward and share that information and say, well, I saw that. So you can start digging back over what you didn't know before. This new line of inquiry gave life to a case that everyone thought had been cold for a long time. And it really changed the narrative as well, because the police had an idea of what had happened. But when you actually realise that there was this whole other event that you never knew about that happened before, you have to start looking into it a little bit more detail because you realise actually what we think was the kind of narrative, the story maybe isn't what we think it is. And that's why even those really minor pieces of information that you think, is it really relevant, is actually really helpful for coming forward. When a person goes missing, the police will initially put a lot of time and energy into trying to discover what has happened. But the longer a case goes on, the less resources are available to help continue the search. Cold cases are reviewed every two years by a cold case unit within the police, but for family and friends of the missing, it's an agonising experience. That's why Locate International have partnered with Leeds Beckett and other universities to increase the resources available to search for the long-term missing. For families like the Shans, this can feel like a lifeline. We, you just don't know how much we appreciate this. It is amazing that you kind people are helping us and... Well, we can't thank you enough. We can't thank you enough. No. It's not that it's a cold case in a draw somewhere. It, it, you know, Kirsty's doing her bit and helping us try to get some publicity out there to speak about him, you yeah. know. The sisters are realistic about their prospects of finding Joseph, but more than anything, they just want to know what's happened to their brother. But in the sense of him, since he's been missing and the feelings of it is pure agony, it's a nightmare. A complete nightmare. Either way, either either way, we need closure. We need closure because our, our life is still stood in 2010. I will have a picture out of him. Just sort of, it's on my mind every day. But when you look at the, and see it, I look at my two sons and I see my brother yeah. in him. Yeah. You know, it's hard. It's just what we're hoping for is that anybody that did know something back then, Please maybe now, if now. you could come forward. On the 10th of December 2010, Joe was wearing a navy blue Euro Auctions bubble jacket, chino or cord type cream trousers, and size 6 Timberland style shoes. He was last seen in the Hyde Park and Headingley areas of Leeds. If you think you might have any information, however small, that could help the team to understand what may have happened to Joe, please do get in touch. There are contact details in the description of this episode. So if people do have information, they are welcome to pass that to West Yorkshire Police. Um, you can use a live chat, you can pop into a police station. There's lots of different ways that you can contact them with the information. Uh, if you want to remain anonymous, you can go through Crime Stoppers. They can also pass on the information to West Yorkshire Police. If you would rather not be involved in that, you can come directly to us at the Cold Case Unit. And we do have a, a contact form online and we also have a dedicated email that you'd be welcome to use. If you do come forward, we can't necessarily guarantee that you're going to remain anonymous because that information might be really helpful to build in a picture of Joseph's disappearance. We will tell you if we're going to have to pass on that information but please don't let that discourage you coming forward because your information could still be really helpful.
All we want is to find our brother's body and lay him to rest. We want to know where his body is, that's it. We know he ain't with us now. We just want to do the decent thing and lay him to rest. The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.